0: This podcast has been made possible with the support of Izuzi Ute Australia, a major national partner of the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and also the sponsor of the Flying Doctor Podcast series.
1: All I remember there is like scrabbling at the earth with my hands. Got to the stage where I laid in bed that night. My
2: brain has started
0: to associate ceiling as the floor. Two point two, heavily
2: responding code one. We have again that lady unconscious. Traffic approach one three two zero. Hi, I'm Landa Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and this is a podcast series about mateship, about life in the bush, and about the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in servicing rural communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast.
1: They did move me. They were worried I could have some spinal neck injuries, but the threat of the, uh, the hinge or the cliff hanging over the top falling on me was a greater risk, so they lose me out.
2: There's a lovely children's book that was recently published which has a message about friends, courage and resilience in the face of fear. The book follows a journey of an RFDS aircraft named Duane who has an important mission but has never flown in the dark before. The author, Andrew Conlon, wrote this children's book as a way of giving back to the RFDS after he went through a very traumatic and life-changing accident in a remote part of Western Australia. Though Andrew has never been afraid of the dark, he has experienced something that would be fitting for a spine-chilling thriller or a science fiction movie and he had to meet that fear head-on. Andrew Conlon is here to tell us his own story.
1: G'day, mate, how you doing?
2: Oh, good. How and when did you come to work in the mining industry?
1: Uh, probably pre-2010, I was working uh, geophysical surveying in a remote West Australian mine. And what does your job involve? Well, we were doing surveying, so we were only just picking up and finding, um, like, voids, you know, faults in the ground where lots of old mine shafts are up there and uh, a lot of people fall through them back in the old days.
2: Do people, is that because um, they're not visible or because they're, like, why is that geologically?
1: Well, over the time they fill them in or they cap them and then the cap falls in, dirt falls in on top of them, or we're aware of where they are, we blow the ground up and it may move slightly, you know, and it may cover it and then we're going to find it again and stuff like that.
2: Ah, so as people are going along and mining, they sort of try to tidy up after themselves, but... Over time, that can change, or things can sink or shift, or
1: well, they used to put um metal plugs on top of them, but those metal plugs, obviously, a bit of water, a bit of dirt, a bit of rust, they fall through, fall in, yeah, right. I found one recently in Cabooli, and I just on the roller, and I just happened to be driving past, vibrating, and the ground started opening up a little bit, and I was like, whoa, I know what that is.
2: <laughs> how how big is a mine shaft? Like, what sort of size are they?
1: Oh. Well, Depends. Usually it's a size big enough for a man to go down by himself. I'm talking the old-fashioned, you know, the old guys used to dig underground and they it up with old bits of timber and big metal frames and this one here was probably two metres wide by 1.5 long and five metres deep and then went down to a massive, massive drop.
2: So would this be the case of a long time ago somebody would uh, strike a claim and would dig a hole and would be sort of off on the gold rush and, you know, I'm going to make my fame or I'm going to, you know, find my wealth and my riches. And so they would start digging and they would, you know, um, dig their own little hole and 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 excavate and, and mine and mine to see what they could find. And then after months or years, give up and try to sort of somehow cover up the mine shaft and move on. Is that sort of what sort of time area we're talking about, like sort of 100-plus years ago?
1: Yeah, well, you go back, like the Kalgoorlie Museum explains it very well. Like a man and nobody would go outside, and just walk, find a place they like and just dig and hole, and they'd scabbage and scabbage, do lots of potholing and stuff, find the gold and chase, chase veins and stuff. But they were like underground with no support. Like, crazy old men, but they made men tough back then.
2: And what sort of time period was this? Like, how long did that go for? Well,
1: oh, years are still going on now. Still people are doing stuff they shouldn't be doing looking for gold. But, you know, I think Kalgoorlie was like the 1700s, 1800s. I'm not 100% sure. I should have paid more attention in that museum.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, all right, so um, so you've been doing, you was doing, at that time, you were doing surveying and so forth, and... Um, my brother, as a diesel engineer, um, has been working in the mining and gas industries for decades, and he's always worked on this rotating rosters of weeks on, weeks off and fly in, fly out. Have you always been on the same?
1: Uh, it used to be, yeah. I'm back doing it now, but, yeah, there was a big break between my injury and
2: now. Could you tell me what happened that day um, when you ended up um, disappearing into the earth?
1: <laughs> it's a... Uh... A lot of this is what I say is from what I remember patchingly and from what I've been told by, you know, there was a big investigation, so as it happens. Woke up, normal day, early, went for breakfast, you know, went out. Somebody had been released that day. They hadn't been doing the job properly and they'd been warned enough times so I had to go into his area and take over his area. And where he said it was okay, it wasn't okay. So I've gone to look through his void lists and there's a flitch, which is where they're under digging inside a pit.
2: Now, hold on, what's a, what's
1: a void list? So we're, we're looking for the voids that are already there. And
2: a void is a shaft, a mine shaft?
1: Yeah, a void could be like a little mine shaft or it could be a little undercropping, like a bit where the flitch is dug out underneath. Right. It could be like a rock that's collapsed the wrong way. There's so many definitions of a void. Like it's just somewhere that you have the ability to fall. You're always looking for them. You don't want to, cars can literally drive and disappear down these things. Yeah, so yeah, we've done that and um, I remember talking to the crew, it was all good. We were just, me and a bunch of Kiwi lads, it was pretty fun. You know, just a normal nice day. You know, it's lovely up there. Sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold, but this stuff just beautiful. Just cruising along, working, pull the car up, turn around. I'm working perpendicular to a flitch, which is a... Where the machine's operating beneath you, digging out where they've um, done the explosions to pull the dirt out. And unbeknownst to me, there's a void in there. So deep below you? Deeper below me, yeah.
2: How deep are we talking? Was that machine working?
1: Maybe five metres. Okay. Yeah. But there's, you know, there's fencing, or not fencing, there's like uh, windrows and barricades, you know, signage and banners and, you know, the usual stuff. So you stay away from it. You know, oh, there's an edge there, don't go near it. So we parked the car up, safe distance from it, and we're checking out some of the piles of the stuff that's been pulled out. You know, the guys are put them in sample bags. I take a couple of steps back and I'm turning around and talking to the guys. I said, all right, once we've done this, we'll go. And I took a step backwards and the ground opened up. Wow. And, yeah, I fell. All I remember there is like scrabbling at the earth with my hands and I couldn't get purchase as everything crumbled and then it collapsed and then the rest of the flitch that was on that side, I didn't fall on the flitch. The flitch collapsed in on me afterwards.
2: So you fell five metres underground? You were swallowed up?
1: No, no, I fell... I fell 28 foot, so what's that, nine metres or something like that.
2: Holy moly. And then
1: the the flitch wall collapsed down on me, yeah. Wow. It's quite scary.
2: So when we're talking about a machine being underground excavating or mining... What sort of size space did you fall into? Like it wouldn't be, I presume, like you were talking about before where, you know, there's a single man who's gone down there and been looking for gold. This we're talking like a substantive mine.
1: Yeah, I was in a pit. I wasn't underground, but there was a a machine lower than me. But I didn't fall into any of that. I fell into an old-timey old mine shaft. I was lucky because it was one of the ones where they break the impact by, you know, they don't just build a shaft straight down 40 feet. They make it down to certain levels. So if you do fall or something happens, you hit a ledge. And I hit one of the ledges, luckily, but I hit it with my head. So
2: so you hit the ledge nine metres down with your head?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of bouncing on the walls and stuff, yeah.
2: Did you immediately go unconscious or did you, what happened?
1: I don't remember much. I don't remember much after that.
2: What were you told happened by was, those that were there?
1: I was told um, I got lightly covered in some rubble and stuff. And then a larger section came down, and then when they came in to get me, they had to come round and dig in from the flip side. So the level, that was already low because they couldn't.
2: So, okay, well, hold on a second. So could they see you from the top? You were so far down, I presume they couldn't see anything. So all they know is that you were there one minute and gone the next.
1: Yeah, they were thought I was they thought I was having a joke hiding behind the ute or something. They were like, ah, oh, what's going on? You know? Yeah.
2: Really? Really? Yeah. They actually? Yeah. They thought they thought oh he's just stuffing around.
1: Well, I I might have gone to the bathroom behind the ute or something, you know, or gone to get water out of the ute or something. But then when I didn't come back for a little while, they're like, "What's what's going on?" They come to have a look and they're like, "Oh, holy moly!"
2: So then, so they're looking down this hole, which is you know deep and black.
1: No, they weren't looking down the hole. What would
2: they do? No,
1: they they can't go near the edge of a hole. You don't go near the edge. They've got to go so the edge is all crumbly and stuff.
2: Okay, so they're standing back and they and they're calling out to you and I presume you're not responding because you landed on your head.
1: Yeah, from what I've been told they would have raised a mayday from there, which is a call on the radio, emergency, emergency, emergency or mayday, 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 and it shuts the mine down and then people respond.
2: Right. So, okay, so now they're going to they've got to try to recover you. So, you were just saying before that they actually went underground to the mine to try to reach you from there. Could you explain that a bit more?
1: No, no. So they went down into the flitch level, which was a five metre lower level, and then came in because the flitch wall collapsed down on me that way. So they came in through there and got me out of that way. They they did move me. They were worried I could have some spinal neck injuries, but the threat of the, uh, the hinge or the cliff hanging over the top, falling on me was a greater risk. So they moved me out.
2: Gotcha. And did they just do that? How did they do that just with stretcher boards or how did they...
1: No, they pulled me out, like like sport of my neck. Grabbed you. A couple of guys pulled me out,
2: yeah. Wow, okay. So what happens when you have an accident in a remote area and you're underground and you've fallen into a hole or you've been swallowed up by a, an invisible mine shaft? Um, what happens next?
1: Well, from what I've been told and what the incident report said, I was then taken by one of the mine ambulances. Then I was at the hospital and... Um, they put in the RFDS call pretty early because they knew i needed need to be airlifted out of there pretty quick. Um, I sort of remember little images and stuff, but my brain was starting to swell up and neck was pretty damaged and as you do, a lot of dirt eyes. <laughs> but uh, I sort of remember flashes of that, you know, people talking to me, not talking to me. It's, it's, it's all a blur really what happened there. But the RFDS was picking up a lady I believe already from what I've been told I'm not 100 percent sure there but yeah they landed on the highway you know those highway stretches they got made out for them and they picked me up took me down to RFDS
2: and you couldn't you were unconscious I presume did they um, sedate you or
1: I, I was in and out I do I do remember talking to a lady uh, one of the nurses on the planes I remember it really I not know, really blurish, but I, do, I distinctively remember that. So she was, I remember her calming me down because I remember I was flipping out about something because I, I couldn't move properly or something. I, I couldn't remember. Yeah. It was quite right. terrifying.
2: Right. It would have been very scary. Were you aware during any of that time period that you'd been involved in a really bad accident or was it just sort of a confusion of I don't know what's happening?
1: I was very confused, but I remember getting told constantly what had happened. Like it's like my brain couldn't hold on to that information for a long period of time. I'd sort of wake up, come out, talk, and then I sometimes I can talk properly, and it was yeah. Sometimes I'd be laughing. <laughs> it was pretty weird. Right. It was a very big blur. That's a blur that I, it's, I still remember this stuff. I dream. I've got PTSD as a result of this now, and these are these are my dreams. I, yeah, it's pretty full cool, on. Right?
0: This podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Have you seen any of our seven large RFDS flight simulators as they move around Australia? Attending school, community or field days. Each is being towed by an Isuzu D-MAX Ute, courtesy of Isuzu Ute Australia. Reliable vehicles are imperative in the harsh Australian outback and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles Are the perfect match for the long distance heavy towing demands of these simulators right across Australia. To learn more, search IZZU online.
2: So, what injuries had you sustained as a consequence of that fall and landing on your head?
1: Uh, I got epilepsy, that's a pretty good one.
2: uh, uh,
1: It's some temporal load damage. Um, I had one, two, three, four. So something, something wrong with one of my back and the neck issues, lower back damage. I had uh, a whole bunch of my nails on my right hand side were gone from where I tried to catch myself or pull myself up. Like lots of scarring and scratches and dirt everywhere. There was pieces of rock that were inside my skin and like because as the dirt lands, it doesn't land and you settle softly. The weight of it pushes down and it crushes you and. Yeah, it was pretty bad.
2: Wow. So they got you to hospital and I presume it was, did they have to take you to surgery or was it observation or was it more just, you know, what did they have to do once they got you there?
1: I was put in traction. Every time I looked up or woke up or came to, I was constantly surrounded by people. Like there was always people there and there's these machines all on me and like blood. It's, it's so blurry in my brain what actually happened, you know, but it was pretty horrible.
2: At what point did it start to improve? Like at what point did you start to heal and and it sort of?
1: Oh, well, I don't really, the, it doesn't really work in the brain. Like until memory started really playing, like actually started coming, like aware the whole time. It was probably a week, something like that. Yeah, it was bad. Woke up, like just woke up one day and everything started to make sense. I was like, oh, and then I was like, all right, we can finally tell you again you've been in an accident. This has happened. And I was like, well. I was. I remember being extremely hungry, but like really sore. Like everything ached. I sort of came out of it like, like a hangover where you've been drinking all day and then hit by a bus. You're like, oh.
2: Oh my gosh! So at that point where you sort of regained your sense of you know where you were and and I guess arrived to the present arrived yeah arrived to the present moment having gone through this traumatic traumatic accident. Like, how were you feeling? I, I just, I can't. Were you just relieved to be alive, or were you freaking out about how you felt?
1: I had a, oh, I still have my wife, but she wasn't my wife at the time then, and she was pregnant with our first child. But I didn't remember any of that kind of stuff. She had to remind me about it, and it was, it was weird, like piecing little things together. There was no like amnesia or anything like that. It was just with temporal lobe damage, just you get forgetful, or some parts of your speech don't start working properly, and it just. As things repair or change, you just know, start using different parts of it. There was just so much going on, all I wanted to do was go home. Just wanted to go home, wanted to sit on my couch, <laughs> but I couldn't because I was always laying in this bed, like, not being able to move. And got to the stage where I'd laid in bed that long, but my brain started to associate the ceiling as the floor.
2: Wow. Wow.
1: So I'd be re- wheeled around in the hospital and every time there was a duct or, you know, air conditioning thing, my brain would oh, like, oh, step over that kind of thing, but there's nothing there, like... Yeah, it was your brain playing tricks you to trying to heal itself.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, I understand. And they had you in traction this whole time so that you could um your your back and your neck could heal.
1: Yeah, there was a, there was worried something worried about swelling and moving and stuff, but I got from what I was told I was extremely lucky for what happened and the amount of damage I took, I was extremely lucky that I healed like I did. Wow. Well, if it wasn't for the RFDS, you know. I don't know where we right. we're going with that. Bit different from a rural hospital to being able to flown with first class first class care all the way down. Yeah.
2: So when you finally when did they finally let you out of the hospital? Like, were you there for months?
1: No, I was there months, two months,
2: something like that.
1: Like I said, the first month, first two weeks weren't really there, but I pushed hard to get out. But after I got out of traction, that they're a lot more relaxed. You know, oh, he's not going to die. Oh, his head's not going to pop off. His swelling. Let, let, let's let him relax a bit. And yeah, then the horrible stuff of just lawyers bothering me and insurance companies and work, and oh, didn't need all that stuff, but that's part of the part of life, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, it is, but I guess if you're alive to at least have those conversations, it's a bit better than the other way round, where your fiance is trying to sort it out. So. Yeah. 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 yeah so three. you got home. Was it a long, long rehab kind of journey to get to a point where you could actually get back to work?
1: Yes, about six, eight years. Wow. There's a lot more to it than just physical. There's a lot of mental behind it.
2: Yeah. What sort of challenges did?
1: Well, the epilepsy, the, the epilepsy wasn't known to start with. It was suggested that it could occur because of the injury I'd ha- had, And my first epileptic attack when I I was at home and my wife still pregnant at that time tried to catch me as I had a, I'm on full crutches and stuff and tried to catch me and, you know, big heavy man and a little little (laughs) tiny pregnant girl. But I don't remember, I just remember trying to speak to her, my words coming out, like saying different words that weren't my words, the words I was trying to say. And then I just went bang, grand mole, seizures and yeah, rushed back to hospital, spent more time in hospital.
2: Right. Has it been difficult to come to grips with... Having epilepsy and and that being an ongoing challenge, yeah,
1: losing your license straight away sort of wasn't great, but I was not like I was driving in that stage anyway. There's, there's more to it. The, the epilepsy was bad, but it is controllable with medi- or Mine is controllable with medication, so can't complain there. And I had a great neurologist. So
2: yeah,
1: work, work did take care of me.
2: But good. Yeah. That's very good. So. Are you still in chronic pain these days or um, has the pain itself been resolved?
1: Uh, The back gives me a bit of issue every now and then, but really these days, who doesn't have back issues? You know, we're all young and don't lift with our knees, do we? (laughs)
2: That's true. That's true. So after such a life-changing ordeal, why did you decide to write a children's storybook?
1: Well, I actually didn't decide to write it. I was working for an asphalt company in Western Australia, and my, one of my mates, Bosco Jokic, was uh, talking always about writing a children's book. Um, it's called Ronnie the Roller. He wanted to write about an asphalt roller, which, by the way, is a book we do have coming out eventually. Just haven't finished it yet. So he just kept going about it. And I was like, OK, I just had to talk to him one day. We're heading up to Geraldton and on the way to work in Geraldton, you know, the airport. And... Um, we just had this conversation. I was like, all right, let's talk about this. Let's do it this way. And he's like, all right, we can do this, this. And I said, well, he knew about my accident. I'd already had that discussion with him. So I said, how about we do it with the RFDS as a plane? And it just took off from there. It was like, it was like we just put a tiny bit of petrol on a fire and it just went, just turned into this massive idea. And we had to take so much out of it to make this little book that we made. Like, it was huge.
2: The story is, is based around Dwayne the plane, which is wonderful. Dwayne the plane, who is scared of the dark, and um, and he has a mission, which I presume is to yes. save people. Is that yep. right?
1: Just to airlift the lady.
2: And the problem to overcome is how to save the lady yes. in the dark.
1: Now, we um, mastered off, uh, we have another older plane in there named Mr Flynn, who we all know was founded, the uh, RFDS. So, we, you know, we got him in there. We took some artistic.
2: Creative licence.
1: Creative licence is what I'm looking for, yeah. But we had a lot of editing for this, like. Bosco had his ideas, I had my ideas, and we just came together with it. We also had Bosco's um uh, nephew, I believe it is, Curtis, who did the illustrations for us. So it all worked out well. It was just this smooth process, and it just, you know, we contacted RFDS and they were like, oh yeah, we'd love to do this. Why? Why not? And then they were all for it and we wrote it, and then we sent it off to a bunch of publishers and we got a couple of no's and a couple of people like, hey, yeah, we're interested. And then this other company's like, yeah, we'll do it hey, right now. And I was like, okay. I called Bosco. I was like, we'd finished night shift. Bosco left early. Called him at like 13, uh, 1.30. And I woke him up. He's like, mate, mate, we got published. You wouldn't believe it. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, two guys screaming on the phone, as you do. <laughs>
2: That's fabulous. That's fabulous. And so for Bosco, is this his first book as well?
1: Yes. It does now say on our right? resume is published authors in children's book, Small Letters.
2: Has Dwayne's first flight, does that reflect at all your own accident or your own fears or was it purely fictional?
1: The message we wanted to put in it was just overcome fears, always believe in yourself and there's always people to help, you know. That's a good message for any kid. My two daughters themselves, I, I, I teach them this, you know. Always believe in yourself.
2: And I guess that they've got a great role model themselves in their dad to be able to see... Um, the challenges that a person can overcome and, and the fears that can be tackled and dealt with.
1: Yes, yeah. I also um, have a meeting at her school with uh, 150 other students to show them how to teach them how to edit books properly and how to get through the process of publishing.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. OK, well, it has been just lovely talking to you today, Andrew, and it's been really good to hear about your journey, and I'm sure that Dwayne's first flight will keep flying off the shelves, excuse the pun. Thank you so much for talking to me.
1: Thank you very much, Lana.
2: The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with someone who you think will love it too. Thank you for listening to The Flying Doctor podcast.
0: Hey. Thank you for listening to this episode and thanks again to our major sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu Ute is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.